Good morning, church. I hope you've got God's word with you because we're going to turn and study it together. Ephesians chapter 2, I'm going to start reading in verse 11. Last week we left off at verse 10. We'll pick up with the next verse together here at verse 11. So if you would follow along with me uh, in your copy of God's word. So then, Paul writes, so then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he Jesus is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone in him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. There was uh, an interview that was conducted, I think it was in 1998, with uh, Dr. Steve Hyman, who would become the provost of Harvard University. At the time of the interview, he was one of the top docs, if not the top doc in the area of uh, psychiatry and psychology studies. He was at that time, he was the director of the National Institute of Mental Health. And uh, the question was asked to him in this interview back in 98 um, about the role of medication in the treatment of mental illness. And Dr. Hyman's answer was very candid and, and surprising to me. He said, he said this, we've been given an impossible job by our culture because we're responsible to cure the pathologies, pathologies of troubled people. And here's what he said about the role of medication. He said, our drugs can sometimes alleviate symptoms, but we can't give people what they really need. Here's what he said. People need meaning and relationship. Same thing is being said by research professor and best-selling author right now, uh, Brene Brown who her, her favorite words for the most fundamental human needs are love and belonging. So very similar, meaning and relationship, love and belonging. You can't live without it. You can't find happiness. You can't find joy without belonging, without human companionship. It's a deep need of human beings. Uh, so that's kind of Harvard version. That's University of Houston research professor version. That's a sophisticated rendition. But, but here's a more popular version was captured for some of us if we were alive in the 80s and watching TV in the 80s was the, the song from Cheers, right? Which said, sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. 
boom, do, doom, do, doom, doom. And they're always glad you came. Right? It was this familiar song, but what's it about? It's about belonging. The whole show, right? It's themed. These people, they know each other. They come to the same place. They know each other by name. They're always glad you came. Why does that resonate? Both of those things, right? Those kind of illustrations of the need for belonging. It resonates because God has wired us for belonging. That's not just something a university professor is onto. That, that's uh, woven into the fabric of the story of creation. The whole story, this is in your notes, the whole story of redemption is a story of belonging. I mean, you go back as far as there is into eternity past, and what do you have? Fellowship in the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in triune relationship, this circle of blessedness and honor and commendation and glory. It's God, not, not a God in eternal solitude, a single person God in eternal solitude. No, you have the tri-personal trinity. You have the, the God that lives in blessed eternal fellowship. And then what happens in Genesis 1? God, the triune God, expands the circle, creates a world, says, let us make man in our image. And he makes Adam. And then he looks at Adam and he says, there's something wrong. Everything's great, but there's one thing that's wrong. Adam is alone. It's not good for the man to be alone. And you might say back to the text, he has you. I mean, the man has you, God. He has a perfect relationship with God. Well, God knew that, but God was saying it's not good for him to be alone. He needs a human companion. He needs, he needs human belonging as well. So, he, so what does God do? He makes Eve from Adam's side and Adam wakes up and says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. I've got one. I've got someone I can belong to, someone who belongs to me and I can belong to. And they both belong to God and they both belong to each other. Human companionship is born in the Garden of Eden. But then you keep reading the story and you know what happens if you're familiar with the story in Genesis 1 to 3 is Adam and Eve, they rebel against God and sin enters the world and misery comes with it. And what happens next? This is in your notes just to prepare us and get us set for understanding our text. After the fall, the rest of human history is a story of broken belongings. Broken belongings. So they're their belonging to God was, was messed up, right? They were exiled from the garden. Their, their, their relationship with God, their fellowship with God was, was broken. And then it had ramifications for marriage, right? After the, right after the fall, they start the blame game, right? Marriage doesn't no longer, from Genesis 3 on, marriage no longer guarantees love and belonging anymore. Um, the family no longer guarantees love and belonging anymore. The first child grows up and kills the second child ever born. Cain kills Abel. Then God comes to Cain and he says, hey, where's Abel? And what does Cain say? Am I my brother's keeper? The answer is yes. Yes, you were your brother's keeper. But Abel, uh, rather Cain, blows it off. Am I my brother's keeper? That's his way of just saying, what do I care? Am I supposed to care? about him, right? It keeps getting worse and worse. You keep reading through the early chapters of Genesis. More and more division is massive global insurrection. And then people are divided at the Tower of Babel. And then in this surprising twist in the story of Genesis, God interrupts the free fall of humanity by making a promise to an idol worshiper named Abram. Pastor Daniel was referring to this in, in our time of singing. And, and he makes this promise that, that suggests that in the future, God says, I'm going 
I'm going to, one, give you children as vast as the stars. And through your family, through your offspring, all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That God is going to gather in a people for his own possession, a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And he will be their God and they will be his people. It's belonging. They'll belong to God. They'll belong to each other. There would, um, belonging would be redeemed both vertically and horizontally through the church. Through your offspring, I'll gather a people from all nations and they will know me, God said. And then what happens? You just keep reading the story of the Bible. You come all the way to the other end of the Bible. And what happens? Around the throne of the Lamb, there's that family, right? That every tribe, tongue, nation, language, people gather around the same throne, giving praise to God who made us one family in him. And if you don't know what to call that family, Revelation says, just call them the redeemed, the redeemed from every nation on earth. That, that's the story. That's our story. That's where God is taking history. And here in Ephesians chapter two, Paul is much like last week. Paul was in storytelling mode last week, right? In verses one to 10, it was a lot more about the kind of individual story. As you transition from verse, which is why the name of the sermon was, this is my story. But as we transition from verse 11 and following, it's much more corporate aspect. So the sermon title here is, this is our story. And our story is told in this passage, if you will, in three chapters, the curse, the cross, and the church. So point number one, the curse, the signs of separation. Look with me one more time, if you would, at verse 11. So then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised. That was a pejorative. That was a negative label. You were called uncircumcised, dirty by those who were clean, the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, verse 12, you were without Christ, excluded from citizenship of Israel, foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. Well, what's this referring to? Well, Gentiles were on the outside lane, right? In the old covenant, if you were a Jew, you had an inside track with God. You had the oracles, you had the writings of the scriptures, you had the prophets who spoke to you, you had God who fought for you, you had God who gave you land, he gave you the promised land. God who gave you his law. I mean, if, if, if you grew up in the family and lineage, physical lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, you had access. God even said, I'm going to give you instructions for building of a tabernacle and later the building of a temple. I'm going to meet you there. I'm going to inhabit your praises and be near to my people. Now, from the beginning, just to put it all in perspective, the Jewish people under God were never intended to hold grace to themselves. They were to be a light to the nations. Again, God's promise to Abraham right there in the beginning in Genesis chapter 12, and it's reiterated a couple of other times in subsequent chapters. That promise said, Abraham, hey, your family's going to get really big, like crazy big, global big, all nations, all families big. But, but if you read the history and you keep moving through the Old Testament, that's not what ended up happening, right? The, the Jews didn't bring light to the nations, um, they, they, if you will, they built a castle, they pulled up the drawbridge, dug the moat, barbed wire, whole, whole deal, and locked the dirty people out, locked the Gentiles outside. And by the time you get to where Paul is writing in the first century, the animosity between Jew and Gentile was so 
so strong. Jews hated the Gentiles. It got to such a point where the Jews would say in that time that it's unlawful for you to help a Gentile mother give birth lest you be guilty of bringing another one of those people into the world, another Gentile into the world. If your son or daughter was going to marry a Gentile, not only would you not go to the marriage, you would host a funeral in order to indicate to your son or daughter, it's over. You're dead to me because you made a contract with a Gentile. Paul, Paul describes the Gentiles in such a powerful way, um, in a concise way. There are five things. If you were a Gentile, you were without Christ, excluded from citizenship, you were foreigners to the covenants of promise. So you were locked outside God's promises. You were without hope and you were without God. That is those five. That's a perfect storm. That is total misery. That is complete darkness, total hopelessness. The plight of the Gentile, John Stott, New Testament commentator, put it this way. It's in your notes. Christless, stateless, hopeless, godless, friendless. The plight of the Gentile. And yet this passage, gloriously, it announces the arrival of a new community with a new belonging, a gospel people, one new man made from the two, one family. Verse 18, through him, we both, Jews and non-Jews. So that, that, that encompassed the whole world. Jews and the people who aren't Jews was everybody else. Both have access in one spirit to the Father but as, as we read, so there's, um, God has purpose in including this in scripture for us. So we're down the road a little bit, right? A couple thousand years down the road. As we read this story of an ancient animosity that was healed by the cross, we're supposed to be thinking what current animosities exist? What animosities exist now that God wants to overcome in the church through the power of the gospel. Ephesians 2, friends, wants to create a church that is actively undoing unbelonging in our world. I almost named the sermon that. Undoing unbelonging in our world through the proclamation of the gospel to all nations. By the way, this, this is why we pray for missions. This is why we go on mission particularly among least reached people groups because of this text and texts like it. There are people in the world who are without Christ, without God, without hope. They've never heard of the covenants of promise. They've never heard of a new covenant. They've never heard of Christ crucified for our sins. And so the basis of mission is a text just like this. Go get the Gentiles, go get the nations, drop the drawbridge and bring them in. And not only that, but undoing unbelonging by displaying the gospel's power to unite very different kinds of people. Jews and Gentiles never came to the same table. That was crazy talk in the first century. Well, what's, what's, what's that look like in different cultures around the world for, for men and women to sit at the same table, for black and white to sit at the same table, for rich and poor to be in the same small group? Right into one family where we don't fight each other, we fight for each other. We don't fight each other, we fight alongside each other. We're comrades, not enemies. I, I said a few weeks ago that the first three chapters of this letter to the Ephesians is an imperative-free zone. There's, there's no commands. Well, that is except for one. The, the one command is found right here in our text. Ephesians 1 to 3 contains just one command. Remember. 
That's the only imperative verb in our passage. Remember. Remember what? Remember you were on the outside. And what does that do? That creates an outward facing church, doesn't it? Remember you were out there. It's cold out there. Remember that? That creates an outward facing, compassionate, missional church, merciful church. There's, there's a principle here. You think about ministry in and through the life of a local church. So why so often does a Christian who has faced tremendous grief in their life and, and they serve in grief care type ministry years later, right? They do that because I remember. I remember what that's like. I get that. I understand that story so I can enter into it and talk to people. But why so often you see a person who's been 20 years sober by the grace of God from whatever it is, addiction, right? And, uh, and they serve in addiction and recovery related ministries. Why? Why do you see that happen so often? Because they remember. And they, they can get up and pull up next to somebody who's in the throes of, of the struggle. And they can say, hey, listen, I get it. I get it. And I'm going to cheer you on every step of the way. And you're going to make it. And they can say that. And they know the story. They, they remember what's happening in moments like that. Here's what's happening. Belonging is being redeemed through the church in the household of faith. And what motivates it? It's this remembering. It's remembering I was outside. I was Christless. I was hopeless. I was godless. I was friendless. Paul's telling a story and he wants the church to remember the curse of separation was overcome by the cross. The cross, the end of enmity. So he says in those first verses in our passage, Gentiles, this is what you were, verse 13, but now. That, that's why this is very similar to even the outline from last week. Last week it was, this is what you were, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love. Right, that was our passage last week. Similar flow here. This is what you were, Gentiles, but now. You who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He tore down the dividing wall of hostility. Um, yes. It's true, and it's in this text that Jesus died to achieve that most fundamental reconciliation that was needed. And that is that we as sinners would be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ and through his blood shed for us. That is the most important reconciliation in the world. Peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God is the foundation for all true and lasting peace in the world. Only by faith. Let's just stop here and just clarify. What is the central message of Christianity? What is the central message of the Bible? It calls us and it tells us this story. Only by faith in Jesus Christ. His death on the cross in our place. Only by trusting in Christ alone do we have peace with God. And until we repent and believe, until we turn from our sin and trust in Jesus Christ, we are at war with God. Whether we feel that subjectively or not, that is the reality. Until we repent and believe, we are still at war with God. And that war, we're going to lose that war. That war is leading to ultimate and certain judgment. But we can hide in Christ. Right, The drawbridge comes down and grace is offered to sinners through Jesus Christ. So if you, friend, if you do not have peace with God, let's get that dealt with first. Let's not even talk about the horizontal peace yet. Let's get that primary issue 
solved. Trust in Christ today. Call on him in prayer. Just simply say, well, I don't know what to say. Just say, save me. Jesus, save me. Thank you for dying on the cross. Take my sins. Cleanse me. Make me yours. Take my life. I want to follow you. That's believing. That's that's following Jesus. That's salvation. But, but having said that, once that vertical reconciliation takes place, there's another one that unfolds into the life of the church. And here the emphasis is on the power of the cross to achieve horizontal reconciliation between humans, right? Verse 14, he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. That is the dividing wall of hostility that separated Gentiles from Jews, humans from other humans. When, when you look at the cross, what do you see? The Bible has a rich and multifaceted answer to that. It's not, it's not uh, unidimensional or two-dimensional. You see God's love for the world. God so loved the world, John chapter 3. You see God upholding and vindicating his justice on the cross. That's Romans chapter 3. You see God defeating cosmic powers. That's Colossians 2. We can look at a number of different texts. But in Ephesians 2, in this text, we see another picture. And it is beautiful. It's this. It's arresting. The cross is a picture of God's holy revulsion against every form of human strife. This is how God, you look at the cross, this is how God feels about human oppression. Tyranny, right? When, when one person places another person under their power, when one person devalues another person who bears the image of God, right? When, when places that originally designed for, for love and blessing and belonging become context for abuse, God hates that. Verse 17, through the cross, you see that language? It's a striking language. God put the hostility to death. It's almost a play on words. God got all hostile with human hostility. One translator even said that you could, you could work it this way and translate the, the original text this way. In the cross of Jesus, God slew the hate. Look, the cross of Christ is not some sappy, sentimental story. God had a right to be royally ticked at the way humans were treating each other. We had erected walls of division and God said in the cross, that's not okay. That's coming down. And God brings the wall down. He pummels it to powder with the hammer of a Roman cross. That's how he brings down human division. It's glorious. Verse 16 is graphic, but it's glorious. God demolishes the wall of hostility. Paul says that wall is the one that kept Gentiles out. And that wall was the law. You see there in verse 15. He made of no effect. Here's the wall coming down. He made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two. You read through the Old Testament and so much of the Old Testament is about who's clean and who's not. Who's in and who's out. And, and the laws there, right, they say in so many words, if you're clean and you make contact with something unclean, you catch uncleanness. The uncleanness is what's contagious. They don't catch your cleanness. You catch their defilement. So bottom line, read through uh, the five books of Moses at the beginning of the Bible, particularly Leviticus. And it's 
So stay away from stuff that's not clean. Stay away from dead things. Stay away from unclean animals, unclean foods, and Gentiles. Stay away from that, right? But then Jesus comes and the rules are all changing and he's getting in a lot of trouble because he's touching all the wrong people. He's touching the unclean, but the story, the, he flips the script because he touches the unclean and he doesn't catch their uncleanness. They catch his cleansing. They, he doesn't catch their defilement. They caught his wholeness. They caught his cleansing. And through the finished work of Christ on the cross, Whatever Christ's blood touches becomes clean. No matter how messed up I am, no matter how messed up you are, when Christ's blood makes contact with your life, you are clean. And not just until your next sacrifice is offered or your next sin is committed. You're clean forever. <laughs> Man, you can't make this up. This is glorious Good news. And then what happens in the book of Acts as the gospel is preached? What's Jesus doing? He's touching all these Gentiles, hundreds of them, and they're becoming clean. And the apostles are announcing new covenant is here. Spirit of God is being poured out and it's announcing that inside and outside are not defined by observance of Jewish law. Not anymore. And they're saying to even the Gentiles, they're saying to anybody who's going to stand in front of them for long enough. They say, come for a cleansing to Calvary's tide. There's power in the blood. Jew and Gentile alike can be washed forever clean. And what happened as you read through the book of Acts? What happens is those dirty Gentiles actually believed it. And here they come for a cleansing to Calvary's tide, experiencing the new life that's in Christ Jesus. And then what happens? Then those Jews and Gentiles are in one family and you catch them and find them at the same table, breaking bread together. Jew and Gentile, male and female, rich and poor, slave and free. The wall of hostility is broken down and we are one family in Christ. One family in Christ. Paul says, remember the curse, but remember the cross. Remember what the cross has done to human enmity. Brook Hills, listen, as a church, we should be exactly what this divided but weary world is thirsty for. They should see it. When they look at us and the way that we love one another, when they look at the diversity of our body and the way that we relate to one another in the body of Christ, they should see it and it should be so attractive and so compelling. The gospel that was preached through the church is the answer. It, this is how God is undoing unbelonging in our world today. A Christian apologist, Ravi Zacharias, was a part of peace talks many years ago in, in Ramallah. Um, and he got to speak personally at the table with Sheikh Talal, who was the leader of Hamas. And here's what he said. He said, uh, Sheikh, not far from where you and I are sitting here today, 5,000 years ago, Abraham, whom you and I both revere, went up a mountain and he took his son with him. And you believe that son to have been Ishmael. I believe it was Isaac. Let's not argue about that right now. He took his son up a mountain and offered him to offer him as a sacrifice to God. And as the knife was sailing down, God stopped him. And he said, I myself will provide. And Zacharias went on to say very close to where you and I are sitting 2000 years ago, 
God kept that promise. And God himself provided the sacrifice. But this time the knife didn't stop and the son was offered. And he said, Shake, I may never see you again. So please let me leave you with this final word. And here were his words. He said, until you and I receive the son that God has provided, we will be offering up our own sons and daughters on the battlefields of this world for land and power and pride. The gospel is God's true and lasting solution to human hostility. Jesus tore down the wall of hostility, creating one new man, resulting in peace, belonging. We belong to God. We belong to each other. The curse, the cross, and the church. The blessing of belonging. Look at verse 18. For through him we both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints, members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. God intends his church to be the ultimate place of human belonging. You notice how the language in this text, it reverses the condition that we found ourselves in before Christ. Verse 11, at one time you were. Look at verse 12. At that time you were. You can tell there's a pivot there. Verse 13, you who were far away have been brought near. And it's all connected to belonging in this text. Verse 19, so then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's Household. That language, so then you are no longer, that's God undoing our unbelonging. That's God undoing our unbelonging. The church, now look, we need to stop and we need to reckon and lament the reality that the church has not always lived that story. This is our story, but the church has not always lived. This story, even back in the first century, the church didn't always live the story. The, the New Testament writer, James, he confronts the church and he says, question, why you put the rich people up front and the poor people in the seats in the back? This is a gospel issue, James raises. The apostle Paul confronts Peter. He says, Peter, how come when, you're, when your friends from rabbinical school came to town, you pulled away from the table of fellowship with Gentiles. Your Gentile friends texted you and you, you didn't text them back, right? They said hi to you in the street. You acted like you didn't know them. How come you're doing that, right? And contrary to a number of divisive voices right now in the Southern Baptist Convention, those guys were not caving into a social gospel. They were saying, you want to live this or you want to talk about it? They were applying the gospel. They were saying, this is our story. This is what we get to live into, live into, grow up into this reality. You fast forward from the first century and the problems of brokenness and broken belonging, even in the church. You fast forward to the 19th century. Frederick Douglass, the former slave who wrote these words just 16 years before the Civil War. Revivals of religion and revivals in the slave trade go hand in hand together. The slave prison and the church stand near to each other. 
The dealer gives his blood-stained gold to support the pulpit, and the pulpit, in return, covers his infernal business with the garb of Christianity. This text should be sobering to us because there is so much division in, in our world, in our culture, even today. Racism still exists. Yeah, we put the hoses away and nobody's swinging from trees, but racism still exists. A group of white nationalists just a few years ago were marching through Charlottesville, torches in hand, yelling, blood and soil. It was a Nazi slogan, yelling, you will not replace us. You remember that? That's just three years ago. That's not 1845. Three years ago, I was in a coffee shop just a few months ago. There was a man nearby and he was talking under his breath about black people. That's not the word he used. I'm not going to use the word that he used, but he was talking about black people. And then toward the end of his conversation, the conversation changed towards spiritual things and he found himself encouraging his friend on the other side of the phone. And he said, well, you know, God works all things together for good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So keep believing. That dissonance clearly didn't, well, he wasn't aware of the dissonance in that moment. And then we see racial upheavals in our society, even recently, even the past couple of weeks, a woman gets shot this week. I'm not commenting on what happened. I'm not, I don't know what happened, but here's what I, here's what I saw. I saw someone come on Twitter, a man who looks like me, shows up on Twitter, writes an article claiming Brianna was, quote, no angel. Why do we need that article right now? Why do we need that article at all? What's the implication of that article? Can we only mourn the death of unarmed angels? Or are we allowed to lament? Right, so you, you find out that an African-American woman has eight bullet holes in her and you think now's the time to spend the whole day shopping and searching for dirt on her? There's, there's a narrative in that instinct. And that narrative is not our story. It is not the story of the gospel. It is not the story of the wall came down. And now we love each other. Now we got a place to belong. And only in here do we meet at the same table of fellowship. Brook Hills, look, after two weeks of incidents like the ones that we've seen these past couple of weeks, and in light of what the church should be, I just want to ask us this. Can we lament together? Can we weep together? Can we display something different in our divided world? Read these words from, from Tony Evans in his book, Oneness Embraced. He tells a little bit of his story here. I will never forget the constant word pictures painted for me as a child that were designed to instill the inferiority myth within me. There were the white tower restaurants that made it unmistakably clear that, quote, colored people were not good enough to eat there. I remember the, quote, whites only signs at places of business and the signs that pointed to inferior rear entrances and read colored people enter here. Then there were the white churches that praised God on Sunday as we did, but would not allow my family to worship there. My father would say, son, they believe that God meant for the races to be kept separate, even when it comes to worshiping him. I knew the inferiority myth had taken root when as a budding adolescent, I thought, as did many of my contemporaries, maybe it would be better if I had been born white. 
This was the beginning of my love-hate relationship in seeing myself, loving the personality God had given me while questioning the package it was wrapped in. Ephesians 2 wants to create a new kind of people, a new community where we're all citizens. We're all family. We all have access through the same spirit to the father. Everybody's got a daddy they can go to at night when they're scared. God is ours and we belong to each other. We don't fight each other. We fight for each other in the church. Here's my question for us. How, how are you undoing unbelonging? What do you mean? I mean, I mean this. Who felt invisible until you saw them? Who felt unwelcomed until you welcomed them? Who felt unheard until you heard them and then you helped them lift their voice, right? I, I, I look out at our church family. I think about our church family as I studied this passage. And there is so much evidence of God's grace in these areas. There is so much cause for rejoicing because I think, I think you do remember that you were outside. It explains why hundreds of church members at Brook Hills decided to become a small group leader. Why did you do that? Because you wanted to give people a place to belong. You wanted to give people a place where they can go and everybody knows their name. And they're always glad you came. They're looking for you, right? It explains why some of you volunteer for ESL. It explains your involvement. Some of you in foster care and adoption work. It explains uh, your patience in in working with and coming alongside and befriending people who aren't changing as fast as they want to. Kids, it, it explains why you go and you find a new kid in school and you say, hi, what's your name? I'm Noah, I'm Camille, I'm Owen. Look, that, that's us stepping into the story of Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Can't you see, even in that brief representative list, what a beautiful thing the body of Christ can be. What happened in the early church that rocked the world, that turned the world upside down? Oxford scholar Michael Green wrote a 500-page book to talk about evangelism in the early church. And here's what he said happened. Here was the magic of first century world. They, that is the church, made the grace of God credible by a society of love and mutual care which astonished the pagans and was recognized as something entirely new. It lent persuasiveness to their claim that the new age had dawned in Christ. The fellowship which the church offered, transcending barriers of race, sex, class, and education was an enormous attraction. In fact, the church cared so much about fellowship that the Jews and Gentiles, having converted to the faith, broke down centuries-old barriers and ate at the same time table look if this became the operational reality of the body of Christ I'm convinced the world would be banging on the doors of every church in the city saying how'd you do it how'd you do it here's here's where history's headed Let, let's live in light of where our story's going where's our story going I'm just going to close by reading this this is where our story is going. Revelation 7, 9 and 10. After this I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, 
And they together cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. 